This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Dr. Anna Schwabi, my research started with cannabis genetics, but it turned into basically a, a, a study on the variation in cannabis. So I looked at terpenes and cannabinoids and the smell profiles and all kinds of stuff by the end of it. So not just a geneticist anymore. I'm also a, a kind of a well-rounded scientist. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today, I'm really excited to be uh, joining a new cannabis scientist friend of mine uh, that I recently connected with, uh, Dr. Anna Schwabi, who, uh, who initially was studying uh, cannabis plant genetics, and now it's kind of evolved into all sorts of things, and we'll get into that. But uh, thanks so much, Anna, for being willing to come on the podcast today. Sure. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about cannabis, as always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, Anna, do you mind, uh, for those tuning in uh, that aren't familiar with your work, uh, one thing I'll say that's really cool is your PhD dissertation is on U YouTube. Um, so mm -hmm. one way that people can kind of learn, uh, I think, broad strokes of some of what you've been doing is um, checking that out. But do you mind giving a little bit of background about, um, I guess, how you your academic background and how you specifically began focusing on the cannabis plant? Yeah, so um, my background before I, before I started this adventure um, is in population genetics. Um, and I worked with a rare Colorado cactus that, that people thought was hybridizing with a more common cactus. And so I did all that work. And then I worked at the Denver Botanic Gardens after I finished my master's. And yeah, one of my volunteers was one of the founders of the company Open Vape. And so we would talk about cannabis and, and uh, things like that as he was getting his company started. And I started to become really interested in it. And there was all these questions. And the, the question that really stuck out to me was that people were going to different dispensaries and buying a product, but it was different. Yeah. every time. And I thought that was really weird because the very, very small amount of information I knew about cannabis was that largely it's propagated through cloning. And so clones should be genetically identical. They are genetically identical. And I just couldn't believe that there was so much variation in the products people were buying. Um, and so with my background, I kind of thought I could check this out. Like it's really easy to determine whether something's genetically identical or not with a pretty simple um, genetic tool that I had already, you know, I'm pretty, I am very pro proficient in using what are called microsatellites. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got started. And I approached my, my, my advisor that I had for my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And I brought this question to him and I was like, we should check this out. And he was like, no way, <laughs> we're not doing that. I don't want to do that. Um, and I guess he talked to his wife and his wife was like, you should do it. Somebody's got to do it. Why, why wouldn't you take this project on? And the university of Northern Colorado is a smaller school 
And so Mitt went around and he talked to the dean and the provost and the president and everybody. And they said, sure, why not? Uh, it's legal here. Um, she just can't bring like weed onto campus because it's yeah drug free zone, um, which I figured out how to do all the research um, without breaking any of the rules. And that's kind of how I got into it. Nice. And did you have to like, because um, I've sort of been in a similar situation working with universities and figuring all that out. Did you have to collaborate with like third party laboratories or something to kind of be able to do sample prep or something offsite? So for the for the DNA portion, for the genetic investigation, uh, I kind of did a pre-prep in my kitchen. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so yep. you know, you, all you have to do is grind up the samples. They're already dry when you buy them from the dispensary because mm -hmm. it's part of the process, right? So it's really easy to grind them up. And then you can, you know, the chemicals that you mix to kind of bring the DNA out mm -hmm. of the cells, that's easy enough. And then I would use a salad spinner to spin down yeah. the, the plant material and then a pipette to take off the, yep. the the liquid and so then i could just take the liquid to school right no no harm no foul um perfect yeah so that's what i did and then i did for for my chemical tests i did partner with a third-party lab just because i didn't have the resources to do that mm -hmm. analysis so yeah and how did the project start because i know it it quickly evolved and went into um different directions so you started out wanting to look at the genetic variation um mm -hmm. so when you, when you started um i guess what exactly were you measuring and then um what trends were you starting to notice early on before the project kind of started to evolve well so i really like i said i didn't know anything much mm -hmm. about cannabis um and as soon as mitt gave me the green light it was in the summer i started going around to dispensaries and just purchasing whatever um yeah. and and i was able to it was kind of difficult because not every dispensary has the same products. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there were some that were really easy to find, like Sour Diesel and Durban Poison and Blue Dream. And um, there was all kinds of variations of Chem Dog. Like it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, Chem D-O-G, Chem D-A-W-G, Chem Dog D, Chem Dog, oh, yeah. you know, 91. And I was just like, I don't know if these are like local variants, like if they've, you know, not quite right. So, so I bought all of those too. And... Um, yeah, so I ended up with about a hundred and it was 122 samples that I ended up putting in my genetic investigation and we had to have replicates. So I, right. what I was looking to see was, are they genetically identical or are they not? And mm -hmm. if they're genetically identical, then, you know, um, it would have been a pretty boring story. Like, <laughs> but it turns, quick one done. All right, right, move on. But it turns out that there's a lot of, um, genetic variation where we would expect to see none or very little if they're grown from seeds like the different variants of Chemdog, right? right? Um, and so in that investigation, it was, I mean, we we didn't know what to expect, really. It was just kind of like a, let's, let's see. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so then our, our chemistry lab at, at UNC had has has a DEA license to work on cannabinoids and so mm. they get plant material from the National uh, Institute on Drug Abuse so yeah. that the, the the plants that are grown at the University of Mississippi my alma mater <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah. and so uh, I so Richard Heislop is he's the one that runs that lab and he was on my committee and I was like well if you have this plant material can I 
have some? Can I see what their genetics look like compared to other plants that are being grown for commercial purposes? And also um, ditchweed. I got some mm-hmm. ditchweed from Colorado and then all over the place. So I wanted, I just wanted to know on the genetic spectrum of cannabis, yeah. which goes from wild hemp, cultivated hemp, high CBD types that are still over that 0.3% threshold. And then, you know, indica hybrids, Tiva, because it's always good to see if anything ever shakes mm-hmm. out with that. And then I had two samples from, from NIDA. And Richard, uh, Richard was like, well, you just can't take any of the plant material out of the lab. Like it's, we were on full lockdown, you know, the DA is very tight. We have to account for every single sample. It has to be weighed. It has to be, you know, recorded. And I was like, I don't need the plant material. I just need what's inside of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I was able to extract the DNA in their lab and walk Mm -hmm. out with just a tube of DNA and not remove any plant material. So it was kind of a loophole. That yeah. I just have, and and it just so happened that we had that lab that had access to that plant material. So it was kind of a, um, I would have never been able to do that study if I if that yeah. wasn't the case. It's a great um, serendipity. Yes, it is. And so um, while I was doing that study, um, a, a colleague of mine, he's a colleague now, um, contacted me about my strain variation stuff and he's a scent scientist he does aromas mm-hmm. and 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 smell studies and things like that and he had just published a, a an aroma study on cannabis and human perception of aromas and he contacted me and he was like i think we can join forces here and see if there's some sort of correlation to the variation that you're seeing in the in the genomes do they do they smell different from others mm-hmm. that are the same so Again, I got in the car and I drove around and I bought a bunch of samples. And this time, <laughs> this time I had a list of like things that I should buy, and it was based on a very on on availability. And so, um, what we, I mean, you can only buy what's on the shelf, right? So we were looking for things like um, Durban Poison, Sour Diesel, Blue Dream. Um, I think Gorilla Glue was one of them. G thirty, but. They weren't all available widely, and we did end up purchasing things that didn't go into the study, but we ended up looking at 15 samples of, well, the the smell study was 15 samples, but I had about 40 samples that included Blue Dream, OG Kush, um, Mob Boss, and uh, Durban Poison and Sour Diesel. And what I was looking for is samples that were genetically identical, and then Mm -hmm. one that was really different genetically. So mm-hmm. that we okay. could then go on to the smell study, which is where we had 15 samples, multiples of each, and had just people from the general public, we kind of put out a social media call, hey, do you want to come and sniff some weed? Of course, people wanted to do that. <laughs> so uh, they had little jars and they would smell um, each jar. And then they had an iPad with 40 scents. So things mm-hmm. like coffee and mint and um, gasoline and skunk and cheese and all kinds of stuff and they would just check all that apply and when we gathered all that data what we found in a nutshell is that people can tell the difference they the the ones that don't genetically belong in that group also don't smell the same Mm -hmm. but there is a whole lot of variation in the smells of the things that are genetically identical as well yeah um because the phenotype and the chemotype is part of the pheno, you know, part of the phenotype, the physical characteristics. Um, the, 
the phenotype is a product of both genotype and environment. And because I had bought them from different dispensaries, mm -hmm. presumably they were grown under different conditions because everybody's got their, right. you know, yep. perfect formula of nutrients and water and light and all that. Um, so it turns out that has a really significant impact mm -hmm. on the chemotype, um, which was super interesting. So then, of course, you know, I had to test the cannabinoids and the terpenes. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so that was the last <laughs> part of my study. Um, and yeah, lots of variability, which is, you know, I, I hear people talking about chemo bars all the time and that we shouldn't mm -hmm. call them strains. I absolutely 100% disagree with that. And this is the mm. hill I'm willing to die on okay. <laughs> because strains, um, you know, you can, you can genotype that with key with chemo bars. There's so much variation. There's really no way to identify mm -hmm. what the lineage of that plant is, if it belongs or if it doesn't, because mm -hmm. of the huge variability in the expression based on the environment. Right. If there was like a standard set of growing conditions, which there isn't, um, mm -hmm. then maybe we could figure it out. But Right now, I think strain is a perfectly good word to use, and it is a biological and botanical term, although people have said that it's not. It is. Um, so, yeah, I call them strains, and I think everybody is just fine continuing to use that term. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it depends on, uh, I guess, what, what botanical crew you roll with, because um, I know that, even, like, my background in botany, uh, working with, like, native plants and stuff, um, strain was never a a part of the the taxonomical nomenclature, but I know that some people are totally fine using that. Um, the chemovar thing is going to be interesting because I'm going to be talking to Arno Hazekamp soon, who originally proposed that concept, mm -hmm. um, and that's something I want to uh, tease out because in my mind, chemovar is not. It's like it's a it's a useful concept, but it it can't ever replace a cultivar or you know a genotype you know that sort of thing it's just a a piece of the puzzle like you could in my mind you could characterize these different um patterns that you notice of chemotypes mm -hmm. you know among plants and you could have some sort of categorization scheme of chemovars but it wouldn't like you're saying it wouldn't necessarily tell you anything about the genetics um, or what people associate with cultivar names, some of the typical, um, you know, uh, visible phenotypical characteristics, the growth habit, you know, and all of these sorts of things. So um, I agree with you that it's not, I don't think it's a suitable replacement for cultivar name because of these nuanced differences in how you can apply these concepts. Um, but I could see a, a future where chemovar fits into a, a system of categorization that is sort of floating, you know, within this, if you're focused on chemotypes and that's the main thing you're studying, yes, there are patterns you could notice and you could characterize those out as long as you don't necessarily assume that that's going to tell you more about the plant in regards to genetics or, um, you know, other things like that. All of that. Yes. hundred percent agree. And the other big problem I have with chemovars is that, you know, cannabis produces, 120 terpenes or more, 120 cannabinoids or more. Yeah. And what do we measure? You know, a handful of cannabinoids and maybe up to <laughs> yeah. 20, maybe up to 20 terpenes, if that's what you're interested in looking at. There isn't, the a lab, there isn't a lab out there that's going to do the full panel. Um, yeah. And, you know, there, there was that paper that came out 
last was it last i don't i can't even time scale right now i think oh, it was I last I, know, you. <laughs> I think it was last year with um they found a cannabinoid that's 30 times more, more potent. oh yeah yeah the, the with the extra carbon yeah uh, and tail. so yeah. i mean that would never show up in a panel you know right. a regular panel of testing but it's got a huge impact right 30 times yeah. and so i feel like with this chemovar idea we are missing out on a whole lot of the micro chemicals mm -hmm. Right. And so what if there's something out there that's only produced in really minor, minor, mm -hmm. minor quantities that we would never measure, but it has a huge impact physiologically mm -hmm. and we would never know. So I feel like and I feel like that may be actually the the, the thing that that people will die on this hill, that there are sativas and indicas. But we just haven't found it yet. I think it might be some of those minor constituents that are that are contributing to the difference that people feel between an indica type and a sativa type. Mm -hmm. And I know there's tons of scientists out there that are like, it's not a thing, it's not a thing. I'm like, well, but all the science isn't in yet. We can't make that right, conclusion when yeah. we just don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that's, that's my point of contention with the whole uh, sativa indica thing but i yeah. do think yeah some of these constituents might have a huge impact on us physiologically and we just never look at them absolutely and you know getting into the the really really messy debate of taxonomy um if you're a taxonomist that values um chemical profiles and you're into chemo taxonomy then absolutely these minor constituents have other um implications as well just in how we categorize these mm -hmm. varieties and you know for instance like my um uh i interviewed um jackie von Salm recently whose group um you know found alpha thugene which uh hadn't really none of the labs were testing for it and it, it hadn't really been um recognized as a constituent of cannabis even though it was sort of presumed to maybe be there but you know based on a lot of the other um monoterpenes and just the, the way the biosynthetic pathways work um but you know you know that was just yeah, my time scale's all screwed up now too. I'm like, what is that? Two years ago, or a year and a half ago, or something that her <laughs> uh, team presented that. You know, and it just goes to show, like, oh, here's another you know piece to this puzzle. And I think about the work that's going on in like David Meary's uh, lab in Israel, where they're testing, you know, they're doing cancer research and looking at how all these cannabis varieties are affecting extracts from these cannabis varieties are affecting uh, different types of cancer cells differently. And they're testing for, yeah. Um, you know, I think 60 terpenes or something like, you know, a lot more than a typical commercial lab, but still not mm -hmm. as much as what's it's there. Still, that's still only half. Yeah. They're, they're doing the most sophisticated analytical yeah. work and it's still, you know, and they recognize that, you know, there's still a long way to go with that. Um, and that's, that's the thing with botanical medicines and, uh, and things like that. You, there's so many variables and that's why I was really attracted to your research, this idea of, just trying to wrap our heads around variation um, because mm -hmm. there's so many levels of it. There's the genetic variation, there's the chemical variation, there's organoleptic variation, you know, which you uh, looked at in the, the sense. Um, and all of that variation is what makes botanicals so hard for uh, particularly regulators to kind of wrap their, their arms around and trying to figure out uh, what to do with these types of products in the sense of, you know, how do you standardize them? How do you, how do right. you research them? You know, all these sorts of things. And especially, you know, in the, in the, in the medicinal world, like we know that 
uh, plants can be used medicinally and that there is variation in the plants. There seems to me to be a much more variation in cannabis just because, you mm-hmm. know, we've been messing with it for so long yeah. that it's got so many chemicals and it's just, you know, this really variable plant. And um, I just, I don't know, like I feel, I don't, I don't want to say we should, I think we should have standard conditions, you mm-hmm. know, where, where if you grow something under standard conditions, here's the conditions, whatever that may be, your plant will turn out like this because you've taken away that environmental variable factor. Um, and then from there, once you have a set of standard growing conditions, let's say a dispensary has a grow house, whatever, they can say from the standard growing conditions, we have deviated in this way. And so our mm-hmm. plants are going to be slightly different so that patients know what they're getting, especially when it comes yeah. to medical cannabis. Um, but it doesn't take away the nuance of all these master growers that are tweaking this and that and to make the best product possible. But that also gives the customer or the patient that knowledge that this may deviate from the, from what you're used to, just because we, we have our special nuanced growing conditions that make it so much better or whatever the case may be. And, and a lot of natural products, um, herbal extracts and things when you buy them at a store usually they have a disclaimer on them that say you know um batch to batch there's going to be natural variability because it's a natural product and so i think part of it too is that consumer education that Mm -hmm. if you go to a dispensary and you buy one strain and you go to another dispensary and buy another strain like just understanding being mentally prepared for that variation i think uh goes a long way um to helping people um and and going back uh, a little bit, the genetic variation you saw, I want to make sure we cover this. Um, what were the, so just how different were some of those variations and uh, what were the sources of those variations? Um, and I know some of that may be a little speculative, but what sort of, um, I don't know, where did your mind go when you saw um, the variation between these things that, you know, theoretically, even among single strain names, um, mm-hmm. that theoretically should be pretty similar. Yeah. So, okay. So there, <laughs> this is, this is a gigantic puzzle, right? So, yeah. you know, we know that plants are going to grow differently under different conditions. We know that. So if you mm-hmm. have your own special, you know, nutrient regime or lights or whatever the case may be, you'll end up with a different plant than somebody who's just chucked it in the back corner of, of their backyard. Um, so that's one source of the variation, but because I was looking at genetic variation or hopefully lack thereof. Mm -hmm. If you're starting with the same material, you can absolutely get to the same end product. So it's really important to look at the genetics to make sure that you're starting out with the same material. And my study showed that in 27 of 30 strains that I looked at, there was a a distinct outlier that didn't match the other samples in the batch. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, like Blue Dream was really good. There was out of eight samples, they were all pretty much exactly the same. But there is one outlier, like really bad, definitely not the same as the others. Um, and so what that means or what that translate to, translates to, I mean, if you have a different blueprint, you're going to end up with a different product, right? Right. Um, so, and this could be that there's, there's multiple sources for this. I mean, cannabis has been grown underground. Pun, ha ha. Uh, <laughs> cannabis has been, you know, it has been an underground operation for so right. long, underground trading lack of record keeping, 
um, things like that. So it's not surprising that there is variability in the genotypes where somebody maybe, you know, forgot the name of it and renamed it something else or, um, you know, were were given something and they they were told the wrong thing, you know, whatever. There's lots of sources of that genetic variation. Um, But where was I going with this? (laughs) um yeah so there's 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 lots of sources of you know variation but if you start with the same genotype the potential for ending up with a similar phenotype is much higher right yeah um there's the flip side of that is there could have been misidentification because somebody you know said this looks and feels like the chem Mm -hmm. dog that i'm used to so i'm gonna put a chem dog label on it right so i mean i think those are pretty innocent mistakes um but there's also the possibility of something a little more nefarious which is you know oh this this month uh jilly bean is selling really well so we'll just put a jilly bean and nobody's checking it so who's gonna know no registrar yeah right and 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 you can't really there's no i mean there's a couple of databases out there where uh you know um phylos has one and Mm -hmm. medicinal genomics has one where you can uh, get your strain genetically tested to find out where it falls in samples with the other with with the same name, and right. either you have it or you don't, basically, right? Um, so, I think you know as 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 there more of these databases grow and people start yeah. submitting more and more samples, I think it might start to even out. But you know, then the question becomes, you know, IP intellectual property yeah. if you send it in and it's in you know canopedia um for medicinal genomics is that now yours right so if i went to the dispensary and bought things that are not in canopedia and sent them in for testing and put my mark on it do those now belong to me right um so you know the whole industry is a little bit messy <laughs> yeah very very messy yeah especially when i think about it in relation to other botanical markets like um just say like roses you know mm-hmm. where you do have a registrar that keeps up with all of the distinct varieties of roses and there are ip claims you know to mm-hmm. uh different varieties and things even you know where i live here in medford oregon we have harry and david right here that spent decades and decades and decades breeding unique varieties of roses um that now you find all over the valley because they've you know people planted them and escaped over 100 years um, and so there's, there's some tracking of that and some centralized, um, systems for, mm-hmm. um, sorting those things out. I cannot imagine, I, I do not envy any person who has to figure out how to do that with cannabis, given that the industry is so old and has been operating for so long without any oversight, proper traceable documentation and everything I mean, I really don't know how you answer some of those questions about who who owns what and how how do you make those claims? Because it's sort of the, I guess the worry is that you create a first come first serve system. Yep. And so it's whoever gets their stuff sequenced first gets the claim, which isn't exactly fair to breeders, you yeah. know, that have been working on things for you know so long and maybe don't have access to those things or maybe they're skeptical maybe they don't want to submit their cannabis samples you know to some other entity yeah and and there is a lot of skepticism in the industry 
And another thing is, is because there is no formalized, you know, system of registration, a lot of breeders don't bother inbreeding mm-hmm. and, you know, breeding out all the traits they don't want. You know, they just kind of right. pollinate, grow them up, see what happens, pick the best ones. And it's a fleeting strain. Like that mother mm-hmm. plant, once it dies out, it's gone. And so yeah. that's also another reason why I like the term strain, because it's not a cultivar. It hasn't been oftentimes bred so that you have a stable seed line. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and if you're growing outside, you know, you get pollinated, your seeds from this year are not going to be the same as the ones next year, you know, because mm-hmm. you've, you've got pollination coming from some of these hemp farms or whatever. And so it, I really think that the term strain is just, is absolutely fine to use because it is such a very different industry in terms of cultivation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why would you go to all of the, the, go through all the time and the money and the energy that it takes to inbreed a line. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. 10, it needs to be at least 10 generations to get all of the genetics, you know, the, the, yeah. deli- you know, deleterious or un, un um, what do I want to say? Like, you know, traits that you don't like to get all that yeah. bread out. It takes a lot of time, money, effort, resources, mm-hmm. and for somebody to just be able to steal it and, right. and register it. Like why a lot of breeders are just like, no, like this is, this is a, a designer strain. Once it's gone, it's gone. Enjoy it while it lasts. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. you can make mothers out of clones, but then we have the problem of, and this never made it into my dissertation, but I have data. So I'll get around to it eventually. But <laughs> the cloning process in and of itself, you know, yeah. uh, is, is stressful on the plant, mm-hmm. on the mother yes. plant yeah. and on the clones. And when you induce stress like that, the plant, so plants in particular, um, respond with epigenetic changes, mm-hmm. which are then perpetuated through multiple generations. And I have a theory listening to growers and breeders, you know, they say, you know, their plants are losing, losing their, their, you know, potency or, right. you know, some of the terpenes have gone and then, they did, and then the mother has to retire because she's mm-hmm. just not producing. I have a theory that um, clones have clones of clones mm-hmm. it's kind of like when you tape a tape of a tape it's like and, multiplicity yes you you start <laughs> to lose quality right yeah. and so i think that's what's going on in some of these strains and i the experiment that didn't make it into my dissertation i did just that i grew up a bunch of mothers from seed and then i cloned and then i cloned mm-hmm. those clones and then i cloned yeah. those clones and i want to see what happens to the epigenome when you do that because plants kind of just do a hail mary where they just like methylate and demethylate and see what happens and either they make yeah. it to reproductive age or they don't and so the successful ones manage to pass on that those epigenetic changes to their offspring which then gives them a better chance to endure and reproduce under whatever conditions are not ideal yeah that's that's going to be um very valuable data once you're able to get that distilled and and reviewed because i know just from my own experience um you know with growers that i know that that's a a well understood phenomenon that that's mm-hmm. you've got to be careful how long you work a mother and 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 all that sort of stuff and that's why some some breeders are really i don't know they say they want it and then when you get into the actual details they decide they don't but tissue culture you know they mm-hmm. they want to try to overcome some of the um i'm trying to remember the the details it's been a while since i read about this but you know cuttings you usually get around 97 percent genetic um you know there's usually around 97 percent genetically identical or so and 
tissue culture kind of gets you, you know, that closer to, to 99%. Well, and, you get, and you get more propagates out of one plant. You know, you, you could right. chop off like a little branch and get a whole bunch of propagates versus having to cut off multiple branches exactly. and hoping that plant is doing okay with that. Exactly. Yeah. And you're, and you're able to overcome if the plant, if the host plant is diseased, you can overcome that with tissue culture and, and things like that. Although sometimes the, the resources to get into a really sophisticated tissue culture operation are often beyond what a lot of breeders have conceptualized when they think about um, the potential of tissue culture. So I haven't seen a, there's some groups that are moving in that direction, but I haven't seen a, a ton of breeders um, trying to do tissue culture yet. Yeah, I and, and t- tissue culture is really cool. Um, I think tissue culture is incredibly valuable to the medical side where they mm-hmm. can make a lot of propagates and have them be consistent. But, yeah. you know, we, 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 we love this consistency idea for medical patients and so that they can get their medicine and it's consistent right. and it does the job every single time. But then, you know, doing that, it kind of takes away all the nuances of mm-hmm. of, you know, all these breeders that have incredibly you know, they have great talent in, in manicuring these, Mm -hmm. you know, their, their, their different strains and bringing out the best in them and stuff. And so it's like, there's just so many like spaces in the cannabis Mm -hmm. industry for all these different things. And there's so much talent. And now we're finally bringing some science into it um, where we couldn't before because of all the, you know, laws and stuff, but it's just so incredibly interesting. Um, it's a great industry to be part of. Yeah, and something you're you're pointing out is that you don't want to strip away the art right. sort of side of the um, of the cultivation and everything just for the sake of standardization. We've been through that so many times with so many things, uh, particularly in the medicine field, but you know, in all sorts of things that we we find something we like and then we want to mass produce it, and in the process, we totally strip out yeah you know, all of that artistic nuance that. Um, that keeps things interesting, keeps things, yeah, keeps shaking I, things up. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said about education for the public. Like, mm-hmm. you know, patients who are new to, you know, they're starting to use cannabis for various, you know, um, effects or whatever, you know, for pain or they need to be, they need to know that there's going to be variation. in if you go mm-hmm. to different places, if you find something you like, go back to that dispensary and buy as much as you can, yeah. <laughs> because it might yeah. go away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some incredible, you know, talent out there growing different things and there's so many different types. And um, yeah, we don't want to take that away by saying, here are the rules. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But we also should have, I think, you know, we could it could be any kind of standard, you know, right. growing procedure. If you deviate from these standard growing procedures, then you're going to get something that's a little bit different. And that could mm-hmm. play into the art. So you kind of have like this like start line. And yeah. then from there you know, blossom out and just, but just let your people know, Hey, this is blue dream, but we have our very own, you know, process that we grow it under. And it's so much better than everybody else's because, you know, growing really is an art form. Yeah, exactly. And you don't want to stifle that. And going back to what you were saying about how little we actually know that there's still so much to, to tease out that it's, it can be very, um, I don't know. It's like we lose a sense of humility when we kind of, force that path we have to leave space open for Mm -hmm. the unknown and 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 all of that and something i want to make sure to talk to you about from one educator to another is the concept of cannabis education i know that um you do a lot of teaching now um on some newer 
uh, like continuing ed, cannabis science classes and mm -hmm. different things like that that are going on. Um, I imagine given that you're a scientist that's worked with the plant and you've seen the, the interfacing between the public and, you know, and all of these, these elements, um, I assume that's, that's probably helped to, um, I guess, feed a certain passion for education. I know that's been the case with me, that the more I learn and the more I see the industry and on all these things, it makes me want to connect with the public more and try to expose some of these things. So, um, I guess to start off, um, what are what are some common questions that you're encountering with students about the cannabis plant? Do you get do you see um, common um, points of interest? I guess um, within these classes that people are really trying to wrap their heads around that you think cannabis education needs to uh, do a better job of addressing. So, you know, the, so yeah, I teach modern cannabis science at CU Boulder with, mm -hmm. I have two co-teachers, um, Chloe Pagoda and Danielle Vergara. She's mm -hmm. a pretty big name in the cannabis science world. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a continuing education class. So anybody from the general public can sign up for this class. Um, you don't have to be a CU student. And honestly, I mean, we, we cover everything from, you know, the history and the taxonomy to the genome and genetics to pharmacology, um, uh, agriculture, hemp, like everything, mm -hmm. policy, a little bit of policy in there. Um, and so I feel like there's just, you know, it's not, it's so complicated. Like there's mm -hmm. so many different facets to just cannabis right. in general that, you know, we might have a student who is, um, you know, a biologist or, or something mm -hmm. like that. And they're going to have a totally different idea of somebody who has a history degree coming in to our yeah. class. And I, there's just so much to learn and there's so much to wrap our heads around. So, like I said, the, the, the course that I teach has, it has 13 chapters, right? From everything mm -hmm. to taxonomy to GMOs. Yeah. And um, I feel like I, you know, one of our biggest points of contention is this idea of indica sativa, mm, yeah. where taxonomy, this is where, where science and the general public sort of butt heads. Yeah. Those terms are used differently in botanical terms, right? And, mm -hmm. and, there, and yeah. there's only one, there's only one species, it's, it's cannabis mm -hmm. sativa. But, you know, when, when they were first describing, there was kind of the colder weather type, which is the shorter stature, darker leaves, mm -hmm. denser buds cannabis indica and then there's the more tropical warmer weather cannabis sativa which is taller and has thinner leaflets mm -hmm. and all that so that's science right that's how we name things we we look at them and 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 it turns out that genetically they're not really that different and not enough yeah. to hold them in as, as as different species or even different subspecies it's just right they're just phenotypes that are uh more suited to different climates mm -hmm. or, altitudes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, on the, on the consumer side, we have the words indica and sativa being used to describe certain effects. Right. And those effects can be different from person to person. Mm -hmm. um, but you can figure out what you like or what you don't like. And you'll associate that term with that feeling or, or, mm -hmm. you know, that effect. And um, those two things don't align at all. 
So the yeah. morphology of the plant does not match effects ever. Like there's no connection <laughs> between the two. And so scientists are butting heads. Um, you know, scientists are saying there's no indica and sativa, um, or, you know, we could base it on morphology, but it doesn't, it doesn't work with how people are talking about it. And so um, I think they're both fine terms to use. One describes morphology, one describes effects. It's just unfortunate that they're using the same words that don't mm -hmm. mesh. Um, and so like, that's one of my, my, one of our big things in our, in our class is, you know, we do talk about sativa and indica because not all the science is in yet. Like, mm -hmm. like we were talking about before, there could be a minor constituent that uh, very heavily contributes to the, the feeling that you have with an indica or a sativa and mm -hmm. people can tell the difference, but we don't know if that's like, um, you're told that it's an indica or a sativa. Yeah. And so then you think you feel how you feel. Placebo is hard to overcome. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but we, we, as we as scientists don't know if there is something contributing to that or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I am, I'm always skeptical to say that there's no such thing as indica or sativa as people are, are telling me because we're, we're not even talking about the same thing, really. I mean, right, you right. know, scientists are talking about a morphology and, this is plastic characters and people are talking about this affects me like this. And we can't, yeah, we can't just say, yeah. you know, no, you, your experience you is wrong. Your, your consumers are wrong. You don't know what we're talking, what you're talking about because our science hasn't shown anything to support that. Well, we don't have all the science yet. And yeah. so I don't think we can just dismiss everybody who says, no, like the Indica sativa thing is real. I mean, and of course, with all this, you know, interbreeding and crossbreeding and stuff, we're sort of washing out the the, oh, yeah, right. the players. It's all hybrid. But, yeah. yeah, but there are some, you know, I like to call them vintage strains that still are very, you know, people swear by it. Like if that is mm -hmm. an indica, like the the like purple Kush, that is an mm -hmm. indica. And then on the other end, we have things like sour diesel. That is a sativa, and you know, people swear by it. And I, I just don't think we can dismiss the people that have been mm -hmm. interacting with this plant for so long. And us as newbie scientists with this plant say, no, 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 you're all wrong. Like, I just feel like, right. who are we to say that? We don't know all the answers well, yet. And it's a big thing in, I think this is a, a general problem in science education and science communication um, that it's so easy as a researcher that has their head down with very narrow tunnel vision focused on looking at a certain concept in a certain way with a certain vocabulary. You know, one thing that I explain to people is that no matter what field of study you go in, every field of study has its own language that you have to learn before you can really understand what those people are saying. Because you have your vernacular and your you know, vocabulary in your head, and you're going to interpret their words based on what you understand, but they're wrapped up in a whole other world, you know, of right. people of like mind that are using terms in a certain way. Um, and then there's, there's this other issue of it's so common for scientists to be dismissive. Um, and that attitude causes major problems in the public then wanting to have any sort of dialogue you know, the, the or, trust disappears. Like the whole yes, public, yeah. the whole general, you know, community of cannabis users tells us that there is an indica and a sativa type feeling, right? And right. we can tell the difference. And then 
there's only a few can like real cannabis scientists out there that actually study the plant. And we're, you know, coming back at them saying, no, you're wrong. Like, <laughs> I think it's a disservice to the public to be so dismissive and be so concrete to say that there is no such thing. When we've got the vast majority of people who have had their hands on these plants for a long time telling us, but there is, mm -hmm. um, especially when yeah. we don't have all the answers. And yeah. I just, I feel like, you know, especially in the cannabis industry, and I can't think of any other industry where the people who have been working with this plant for so long are generally pretty distrustful of the scientists. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. I've been, oh, you yeah. know, I've been growing cannabis for 40 years and yeah. you're stupid. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I've, I've had that. Yeah, I've, I've been giving a lecture somewhere and had someone stop me and basically do that to me. Uh, like, no, you're totally wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And I try to use those situations as a chance to engage a dialogue and to rather than be like, well, no, this is what this paper says or whatever, to say, well, where are you coming from? What do you mean mm -hmm. when you say that I'm wrong? Because maybe we're just talking past each other and maybe there's a way we can get on the same page. Um, because I know me myself, I have to check myself constantly in the way that I'm talking about things just because, I mean, I talk to other researchers all the time. So my mental space is different um, in this sort of environment versus if I'm going to do a public seminar and talking to a bunch of people in the community. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky. And a lot of times what I find is it, it becomes a, um, a language game of just trying to figure out like, well, like if I say that indica and sativa aren't well supported scientifically, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that there aren't all of these chemical varieties of cannabis that are eliciting unique effects. And what you think of as indica, you know, is maybe tied to some chemical profile. Um, and that chemical profile is real and, and all of that's there. But maybe the way we use these terms is inconsistent, and and so understanding that there's something there, but then also we're muddying the waters by the way we use some of these terms. Um, sometimes that kind of helps people relax a little bit. It's like, okay, so you're saying that like what I'm experiencing is real. There is science behind that, you know, that there are all of these biochemical differences and everything, but maybe just the way we're using words is you know maybe a little clunky and like you pointed out in your research i think a lot of growers understand that things get mislabeled things you know um whether intentionally or unintentionally sometimes people grow from seed versus cloning and still use the same strain names and um and so yeah it's i don't know it's something that it's it's a constant challenge i think for us as as science educators working in the space to or constantly be sensitive to that dynamic um, in order for us to actually be effective at educating. Yeah. And I, so I like to use, you know, we've got all these terpenes and cannabinoids and they, they all feed into the overall effects of the plant. And, you know, what somebody prefers may not be the same as what another person prefers. So I use this cake analogy. Basically all cakes have the pretty much the same ingredients, right? And so those would be right. all the, the major terpenes, the ones that we measure, and the major cannabinoids, the ones that we, we measure often. But there's all of these other subtle things that go into the cake. Like, you know, so-and-so might put in nutmeg, you know? Right. and, and you get bit a bit of vanilla. Yeah, you, you get this totally different experience. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, 
you know, a, a chocolate cake is a chocolate cake and a vanilla cake is a vanilla cake. Um, so you can kind of have these broad categories, which is kind mm-hmm. of how I, you know, I, I think about cannabis. So, you know, like you might go into a bakery and you don't know anything about cakes and the baker says, do you like cakes or pies? Mm-hmm. Or there's this kind of, you know, hybrid pie right. cake thing that's called a cheesecake. And yep. you look at them and you smell them and you say, I don't like the smell of that pie like that, or I don't like mm-hmm. hot fruit. I know I don't like hot fruit. So that's not for me. So let's look at this cheesecake and this, the, and the cakes. Well, now within the cakes, you've got chocolate cake, vanilla cake, strawberry pound cake. You've got, um, you know, Bavarian, whatever, red velvet right. cake. So you've got all of these different types. They're all still cake, right? So you could kind of say these are all sativas, but they all have subtle differences. And you might not like chocolate cake, but you really, really like pineapple upside down cake. So now you can start to narrow down your choices. And so that's also, you know, the reason why I, I don't dismiss this idea of, of indica and, and sativa, because it gives people a, a starting place. Yeah. You yeah. know, you can rule out, you know, if you take one of each home and you try each one and you say, indica made me feel horrible. I was sleepy um, and I just couldn't get anything done. That's not for me. Or you could take them both home and be like, you know, what? I really like that for, for nap time, for bedtime. But in the morning, I want this uplifting or whatever the case may be for you. And there might be right. one that you just really don't like, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so right. you kind of have to try all these things and find out what works for you. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. Right. And so I, I, I'm almost always 100% on the side with the customers and the, and the consumers mm-hmm. that if they tell me something, as a scientist, it's my job to figure out where Why? they're yeah, why why this why are these people perceiving these things? It's not my job to say you're wrong because I haven't found that yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is it's such a yeah, I mean it's such an excellent point. And one thing I wonder, uh going back to what we were talking about about chemo bars and stuff, like, you know, maybe the future you know, because I think one thing that a lot of consumers recognize is that the sativa indica model when you're talking about effects is inadequate in a sense because it it presents a uh, dichotomy of effects when really there's a wide spectrum of effects. People don't just feel sedated or uplifted or whatever. There's all sorts of different things in between. And and so like maybe maybe rather than sativa and indica, maybe it evolves into a spectrum of chemovars um, that that then more neatly, you know, package into correlate to these to these differences that that people notice. Maybe, um, but I, it's already such a common usage. Like, mm-hmm. if you talk to anybody who has smoked or used or consumed, and you say sativa or indica, that person knows what you're talking about. So why dismiss yeah. language that's already so widely used and has been used for you know decades? Why dismiss that? Why don't we just figure out how to how to work with what we have? You know, and sure. and um, you know, with with all of these really really complex chemical profiles, and along with our own personal chemical interactions, you know, we right, have different num- that part. Yeah, we have different receptors. We have different numbers of receptors. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are incredibly sensitive. Some people are, you know, uh, the can- the cannabis. I never know how to say this word. So they get sick from it. Like, oh, the hypermesis. Yeah. yeah, violently ill from it. So. Everybody has a different experience. If we could categorize them, 
you know, mm-hmm. so that somebody knows what to expect going in. I think that's a fine thing to do. Mm-hmm. Same thing with alcohol. You know, we have yeah. beer, we have wine. And in those that, you know, in, in those broad categories, mm-hmm. we have IPAs and, right. and half spectra of within spectra. Right. And so you can kind of narrow down what is right for you. I, you know, I don't like red wine, but I love white wine. I know that, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm not going to buy a bottle of red wine because I've already kind of narrowed down and honed in on what is right for me. And so I just, I don't know, that's, that's the way I think about cannabis. And mm-hmm. that's the way I explain it to people. And it's fine if you don't like IPAs, totally fine. Have a glass of wine, you know, go with what you like. And it's going to be a different experience for everybody. Yeah. My, my boyfriend loves beer. He drinks IPAs. I can't stand them. They're gross. Um, <laughs> and so, and that's totally fine. We have different experiences. Yep. And if we could just, you know, come together and accept that fact, mm-hmm. then I think, yeah. then I think we could start, you know, moving in the right direction. And I think we need to listen to the people who are consuming and have had their hands on this plant for, well, hopefully there's not anyone who's had it on for centuries, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's, there's vintage strains, there's, you know, old, old, yeah. old timey growers, like that's mm-hmm. who we should be listening to. And it may just all be um, anecdotal stuff and stories, but it is rooted in science. These people are yeah. horticulturists. Right. You yeah. Know? I mean, and, and anecdotal evidence is still evidence of something, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's always a starting point. I mean, that's how science works. Like right. you start with experience and then you ask questions mm-hmm. and then, and then you start to explore and try to do your best to remove biases, to get at the best you know, explanation of that experience. That's, that's pretty much what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah. And I, I don't know if we didn't actually go into this. So in the last little bit of time we have here, what did you notice in your data sets regarding the Indica Sativa labels? Cause I don't think we explicitly talked about that. So um, I used microsatellites, which are, you know, mm-hmm. tandem repeats of, of, of the, the base pairs. Um, and they're used in a lot of different, uh, things to tell things apart. So the grape industry, yeah. the apples, you know, mm-hmm. every it's a genetic analysis. It's widely used and it can generally tease apart all kinds of stuff. You know, that's, that is that type or that is not that type. Um, for my data set, um, we didn't see any clear separation of mm-hmm. indica and sativa types. Yeah. Um, but in, let's see, in which paper was it? It was in my first paper. There was some clustering of indicas and sativas and then overlapping with hybrids. Right. It's just not really clear. Yeah. But we've been messing with this plant for thousands of years. It's not surprising mm-hmm. that there isn't right. a clear cut, this is this type and this is this type. I think there is something there. Um, just the, the massive amounts of people that subscribe, there is a difference. Um, and I also think, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, all the geneticists are trying to figure this out and everybody's saying, no, there's no difference. Oh, there's no difference. There's this species of bird and I forget what bird it is. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Two, two different birds, two different species. They differ by six regions of the DNA, like just mm-hmm. six yeah. base pairs. Like they're almost identical. And so I think it could be the case. We're, although we're all doing these genetic analyses, we just haven't found tiny little bit that is contributing in a large way to 
the separation of the indica sativa types. Um, mm -hmm. That's just a theory. I don't, I don't have the resources to test that, but you know, that's why I never dismiss this idea. And um, like I said, this is, these are hills I'm going to die on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and when we're, when we're talking about, you know, like you said early on, the colloquial usage of indica sativa is primarily talking about effects. And when you talk about effects, then you, you have to study pharmacology and when you get into that, like you, you alluded to just earlier, you've got your own biochemistry that brings uh, an element to the picture. And so what would be really fascinating and something I've been thinking about a lot lately in terms of, because I've been talking to a lot of endocannabinoid system researchers, so my brain is thinking about like, how do you measure endocannabinoid system tone and all these other things, but possibly maybe the, the concepts of indica and sativa as they you know come from the cannabis culture maybe they'll make more sense when we get a better handle on that personal component of what people bring to it to understand why the effects are inconsistent because one of the things that has muddied all of this is like even if you look at self-reported data from users it's pretty close to 50 50 as far as like something that is presented as an indica you know 50 60 percent are gonna experience it as indica effects and you know, 40, 60% are going to experience the opposite. And so why is that? Well, maybe, maybe that's where endocannabinoid system tone comes into play. And maybe, a, maybe there's some phenotype of the ECS that when partnered with a certain, you know, chemical profile of a cannabis plant or whatever, you then get an indica effect, you then get a sativa effect or whatever. Um, and so maybe, you know, like you're pointing to, like maybe there's other things about the plant that will understand later that maybe will give more credence to the indica sativa language and how it's used and then in my head maybe there's another element too within the body that as we understand the ecs more maybe that'll all come together to then tell us a story of like oh well now it makes perfect sense why people are experiencing these things so i like i like these broad categories of indica and sativa what i don't like is people saying sativa will make you feel like this <laughs> yes yeah, because that's not true for everybody. But absolutely, yeah. it's it's like you know, beer and whiskey. You, can, mm -hmm. I, I can tell you, your beer will make you tired. Yeah, and whiskey will make you want to fight. That right. may be true for me, but mm -hmm. you won't know until you experience it because of your personal chemistry how it's yeah. going to make you feel. So, you know, if mm -hmm. if we're mm -hmm. describing here's this category and here's this category, and then within that, you know, you've got all these other things. But don't, you know, don't attach certain, mm -hmm. you know, uh, descriptors. Yes. You know, right. if, if, I, <laughs> if I smoke something and I say, this gives me the feeling that I've always associated with a sativa. And as long as we're consistent mm -hmm. with putting, you know, beer in the beer category right. and wine in the wine category, it doesn't matter how you perceive it. And, you know, you know, you don't like wine. Okay. It, it doesn't matter. If I say, you know, wine is sour and you say wine is sweet, those right. are our, our personal perceptions, mm -hmm. but they still go in that category. Yeah. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, that's a good point that you can think of these terms as placeholders for buckets mm -hmm. of, yeah. of the things that we're still trying to figure out. And as long as you don't run <laughs> off in the wrong directions with those labels and use them in ways that, you know, 
um, you know, start to creep out into, into those areas of suggestibility and all that sort of thing. Then, yeah, like this will make but, you feel like this because you don't right. know. But right. having the buckets at least gives you a, an anchor right. to, to categorize and you humans, know, all of these concepts. Humans love to categorize things. That's how we communicate. Oh, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> that's how we communicate with each other. That's how, it's like, I just, and, and, and so, you know, these, these chemo, like we can't, it's really hard to communicate chemical information. Like we just aren't good at processing that sort of stuff. So yeah. when you get on Leafly now and you see, you know, Blue Dream, it has, um, uh, it's, it's got this, it, it gives you the, the top three terpenes or whatever. Right. That doesn't mean anything to me. Right. I don't know what those terpenes are. And they, you know, and in a combination, they do something different. And so mm -hmm. we don't communicate like that. Like that could eventually yeah. be some good information. But, you know, you don't go to the store and go to, let's say, the cake section, because sticking with the cake theme. Oh, yeah. Make me hungry some more. <laughs> and, yeah. read the, and, and read the ingredients to figure out if you like it. You don't do mm -hmm. that. The first yeah. thing you do is look at it. You might smell it. You might mm -hmm. taste it. And you either come up with, yes, I like that, or no, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. So now that's how you get to, I like chocolate cake, but I don't like pies. Then once you become a cake connoisseur, you might want right. to know what all the ingredients are and in what amounts they are in so mm -hmm. that maybe you can make your own cake or whatever the cakes may be. But that's not useful information for the general public. You know right. what I mean? Ab absolutely. Yeah. No, um, that, that makes absolute perfect sense that, um, it's almost like there different types of data have different uh meanings and and value depending on um how intimate your relationship with is with that with that thing and i think what we're both getting at now in all these discussions is essentially what's what's almost most important is to have a consistent reference point so that we can yes. compare data like yeah, that's and, really and compare from our own personal experiences and not have it be different from some you know like yes we're yeah. all going to experience it differently but if we're coming at it from the same point then we can start having a conversation exactly and and trying to get the I, an entire industry of producers and consumers to totally change their vernacular it's probably not going to happen <laughs> no and it, and and honestly there are so many less I don't know how to, <laughs> there's so many more people on the consumer and the, and the, right. you know, the, the customer side than there is on the science side. And I believe yeah. that it's the scientists who need to, you know, have some concessions and work yeah. towards something that we can talk to about the general, you know, about the, with the majority of people that come in contact with cannabis. We have yeah. just walked into the room basically and have started telling people what to do. And I think that's, a horrible way to go about it <laughs> absolutely we yeah. all need to get to the same point and i there's nothing wrong with the way that the general public is talking about it it's just that scientists are buttheads <laughs> <laughs> well like i said sometimes we have Stubborn. very narrow tunnel vision yeah um and so that's why it's important for us to get out and mingle because <laughs> yeah when we uh we when need we to stay get in our departments lab. yeah exactly yeah it's important <laughs> Well, um, in the last few minutes um, that we have here, I really appreciate you being willing to to spend so much time talking to me. I wanted to get a sense of, and you've kind of talked a little bit about this, but based on the research you've done now and the teaching that you're doing and talking to students and getting a sense of 
um, you know, questions that people have and, and where um, current research is at. Uh, where do your research interests lie now? I mean, you talked about sort of the data sets that you have that you'd like to, you know, piece together um, from the research that you were doing. But even beyond that, uh, what's piquing your your interest the most these days and, and looking into the future? Um, so I really want to I really want to keep going down this, you know, line of epigenetics where clones of clones of clones mm -hmm. and what kind of effects that has over time. Um, because I think that would be really useful information for the industry. Yeah, so basically, you know, I mean, my whole my whole research has been attacked from a customer point of view, from a consumer mm -hmm. point of view. Yes, we can do science for the sake of science, but who are we doing this for? Mm -hmm. We're doing this for people and to get them information so that they can make good decisions. Yes. So yeah. the epigenetic portion would be really great to know um, for, you know, for growers and breeders and and that side of the industry. Um, I also want to know, so not just marijuana, but hemp. So mm -hmm. we have all, you know, they're all growing, a lot of them are growing outdoors. And we know that the environment plays a very large part in the phenotype, um, mm -hmm. including the chemotype. And they're, you know, under these strict restrictions of keeping under 0.3% THC. Right. But, you know, when we grow a plant in California versus Texas versus Colorado versus Vermont versus Florida, you're going to get totally different phenotypes, you know, and, yeah. and, and Florida is having a really big problem right now with their with their plants going hot a lot of times. And yeah, I think, yeah. you know, and if you buy from Oregon CBD and then grow in Florida, well, that's it's different. It's different and it's not suited to that climate. So I would really love to do some work on figuring out uh you know what performs best where so that mm -hmm, farmers yeah. can have informed decisions based in science to say yep. this strain doesn't work in this area but this does so that they're not wasting their money and their time and their resources because the hemp industry is huge yeah but I also know. there yeah. are tons of farmers that have to destroy their crops every year because they can't keep under the threshold yeah, absolutely. And it's something being from the South myself, having come from Mississippi and everything, it's something I, I think a lot about because I now know a lot of people in Georgia, Tennessee, um, Arkansas, other places that are starting to get into cannabis cultivation under hemp programs. And yeah, they're they're running into all sorts of trouble that the uh, the consultants from the West Coast are not necessarily able to easily um, address for them. And um so that's something I'm I'm very interested in too. And I want to talk to some I want to talk to some cultivators um that have been doing it a while in the southeast to talk about those differences. Cause so I think it's fascinating and underappreciated um just how dramatically it can be. And I, I understood that a little bit because I, I did spend a little bit of time at the NIDA lab at the University of Mississippi and saw, you know, some of what they were doing and talked to them a bit about um differences they notice in human climates, you know, versus arid mm -hmm. climates and stuff. But yeah, that's that's some work that needs to happen quickly because I mean yeah. there's so much like family livelihoods and so much money being wrapped up into these grows that you're right that are just having to be trashed. Um it's really sad. It it's sucks. Just, really, really yeah. bad. Yeah, it really does. Um well awesome. I'm gonna I know we're getting close to time here, so I don't wanna uh take up any more of your time, but this has been a really fun discussion. Um it went into some nuances that I think are really important um to tease out. Um, so thank you so, so much for being willing to come on the podcast and, and talk to me for the past hour or so. I really, really enjoyed it. 
thank you so much. I always love talking about cannabis and you've been a great host. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And as you continue your work, um, you know, if uh, anything comes up, you start um, working on those data sets with clones or whatever. If you ever want to come back on and talk about always. whatever. Always. Um, <laughs> yeah. Stay in, stay in touch. Um, I'm hoping and, to get uh, a grad student or an undergraduate student to to run all those samples and, and figure that out since I'm not really on campus anymore. But I definitely don't want all that data to just absolutely you know, get yeah. lost. So yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Well, in the, the last minute we have here, I want to hand the platform over to you uh, to sign off and let people know how to learn more about your work, about the classes and that you're teaching. Any Anything at all that you want to share or plug, I'll give you the last word. Um, yeah, so uh, Colorado, the University of Colorado in Boulder, we have um, modern cannabis science class that is open to the general public. We usually only keep about 20 to 25 seats open for that. So if you're interested in taking that class, it's a very science heavy, intense class, um, but it's, you'll learn so much if that's what interests you. Um, any, you know, you can, I have a website, it's anashwabi.com, basically. Nice. So awesome. You, I'll throw it in the show notes. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that has all kinds of stuff. It has my research. It has my dissertation. It has, you know, published articles. It has basically my, my digital CV. Um, and my art too. I'm a botanical illustrator. I saw that. I actually meant to say something about that. Yeah. It's very impressive. So yeah, check out, um, Anna's artwork. It's very, very impressive. And botanical illustration is something I'm uh, very interested in as well. So we have a, um, a shared, your, shared interest there. I see your illustration in the background on your office wall there. Oh yeah. Yeah. The old, old print. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, at heart, I'm a botanist. I'm hoping to, I mean, I have a master's degree, but I'm hoping to start a botany um, PhD program here in about two years. Oh, very cool. Um, to try to finally carve out time to pursue some research interests that the private sector is. Oh, boy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> one thing that I've, I've thought about putting together is a panel of cannabis scientists to come together and talk about their experiences in the private industry because um, we have some doozies <laughs> as far as things we've experienced trying to do research. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, everyone that tuned in, thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to CACpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And Instagram is usually best for most active there. Um, thanks so much. Stay yeah. curious. And uh, take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. To support the show and get access to an exclusive members-only podcast feed, access to private events, merchandise discounts, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash curious about canvas.